Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, uh, we give you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now, joining me today is our uh, Tech Central editor, as always, uh, Niall Kitson. And Niall, two big stories. They're like buses, big stories, aren't they? Uh, You wait for ages and then two come along at the same time. The first of them is probably the biggest story of the year, a story that has been years in the making, and it's the National Broadband Plan. Are you delighted it's arrived? Uh, Habemus Broadband, after seven years being selected, Mm -hmm. um, we have a plan that is going to take another seven years and instead of 500 million euro is going to cost 3 billion euro so it's it's finally here dusty do, do you feel the love do you do you feel the greatness i f- I, I feel sarcasm is what i feel from you Niall. <laughs> to, 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 be, to, to be honest that's and that is the well, reaction i think of a lot of people because it's been bandied about and nobody really knows what it is and it started off as this and now it's something completely different and the, and the costs have gone and everybody seems to be just kind of going Rah. but i'm actually very positive about the entire broadband plan Ah, okay. You are excited about the National Broadband Plan. Why? Right. Well, let's not go with excited. (laughs) That might be going a little bit too far, but I'll tell you why. Because the internet is such an integral part of our lives these days that really to get on and be prosperous, you really do need internet and you need fast internet. And that is a little bit tricky if you happen to tend sheep at the top of a mountain in Donegal somewhere. Okay. Well, I mean, some people have likened um, the importance of the National Broadband Plan to rural electrification. Uh, And I think there's a lot to be said about that. But this isn't the first time uh, that we've had a National Broadband Plan. You might remember we had one in... When was it? 2009, 2010? Uh, yeah. The, the, uh, where at the time the solution was to get um, mobile dongles into people's houses with a promise of a rip-roaring, what, between three and seven megs? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we all know how that worked out. So why is it different this time? Well, uh, I think that when you say three to five megs, I think when this national broadband plan, they were trying to get 30 megabit connections to every single home in Ireland. But now, um, since then, and with all the conversation with all the various bidders and right down to the last remaining one, uh, their goal is to get one gigabit connections to every single home in Ireland that wants it. And a lot of okay, people... Okay, but that's, that's not a short-term goal, though. That is a short-term goal, actually. Is it well? I mean, twenty twenty six. I think is the the official deadline for, that for, we, for we'll scheme, have a gig by then. For a scheme this big, uh, that's 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 fairly short term. Like within a number of years, every single home in Ireland having a, a one gigabit connection to the uh, to the internet is fantastic, and I think it's very very important because. Years ago, as you say, we had two to five uh, megabit uh, connections to our homes. You'd never survive with that now. 
Oh goodness, no! You you'd barely get uh, a YouTube um, clip in HD stream at that. Exactly. So what what's it going to be like? You know, kind of in five or ten years time, uh, will it, will a it, one gigabit connection even be enough? We don't know. We don't know, but mm. I think they are absolutely correct to be thinking about those kind of big numbers and to be getting them into uh, all of the homes uh, around the country. Uh, the other thing that people are giving out about is the cost, three billion. I'm, I'm not bothered about the cost being three billion. And I'll give you a very simple reason. Because we forget so quickly, 10 years ago, how much did it cost to bail out the banks? Okay, right, right. Uh, are, is the, are you not engaging in a little bit of false equivalency there, though? I mean, do you think broadband is as important? Uh, I mean, broadband is it's, it's national infrastructure. You know, the banking system, while necessary, is, is a private interest. My big issue with the way the national broadband plan will be executed isn't so much the cost, because I think it is so important to the economic backbone of the country that I'm kind of with you on this, that it doesn't matter how much it costs because the cost will be recouped at some stage, mm-hmm. right? I, I mean, there is sufficient economic activity out there that can justify broadband um, almost at any cost, really. I mean, we, we want to promote digital business outside of Dublin. We want to get the entire country connected. We want people to have access to, to basic services. And this is the sort of activity that recoups its cost over over time, even if it is a, a very long-term period. My issue is that in t- come 2026, when the, when the project is over, uh, we turn over that network to a private company uh, and go, okay, yep, we filled in the gaps that other industries wouldn't touch. Um, so we, we basically paid for this um infrastructure project uh, we don't want to administer it um because you know perhaps there isn't a, a viable return to the exchequer so we're going to give it to you guys to to national broadband uh, and you operate like a wholesaler and let other people piggyback on your network so basically they've looked at the syro model and gone yeah do you know what we can do that for really remote areas but But we don't want anything to do with the network. They're effectively making the exact same mistake with the National Broadband Plan as they made with AIR when they privatised Aircom, as it was at the time. Well, that I know very little about, so I I can't really uh, discuss it. Uh, Another thing that I've seen an awful lot of people giving out about uh, with the National Broadband Plan is they're all going, "Ah, you should just just go 5G. (laughs) I think you ah. answered, but I think you answered that question when you said initially they were going to do like a mobile broadband thing and people are all going to get three to five megabit uh, connections. Yeah, well, that's what happened with three at the end of the last decade. Uh, I remember I just started on uh, editing PC Live at the time, and this was the great white hope was that 3G dongles would, would solve the broadband connectivity problem. Uh, right now, we uh, have a choice between fibre to the home uh, which is what Syro uses, and I, I think that's pretty much the technology people want to go for where where available, and five uh, G as the wireless option. Um, now, for me, to my untrained eye, five um, G is an excellent solution. Imagine our going five G. They've pulled out of Dublin, and they're looking to um, uh, focus purely on regional areas and the rollout of five G, uh, which to which I think brilliant uh fast speeds 
Um, okay, granted, maybe not aimed as a consumer product, but uh, I think it's a fine technology. You disagree in this case. Well, I think the whole thing with 5G and what people forget is that 5G is made up of uh, hyper-local transmitters and receivers. Mm. And the whole reason why the network will work is because literally every 10 yards that you walk down the road, there's going to be another 5G node or point that you can connect to. Right. So in order for that to make it to make that happen, you actually need a lot of fiber or a lot of copper or a lot of wired Internet connections uh, all over the place. But if so you don't it's not have a true wireless solution, then exactly. All right. Uh, so what actually, you know, you can't do that in the middle of the country or in rural areas because the, the, the signal just won't go that far. I'm in the business of, you know, kind of when I'm not doing radio here with you, uh, one of the businesses I have is a radio transmission company. And I can tell you that the biggest cost for any national transmission network, uh, because we're working on this at the moment, is that last 20% of the population. It is the people who live in remote areas and islands off the coast and, and on little cottages on top of mountains and stuff like that. Trying to get services to them is a nightmare. Cities and towns... No problem. In fact, you, we, we could set up a, a transmission network tomorrow uh, with, you know, 20, maybe 25 transmitters, and we would cover 80% of the population. But we would need the same amount again to cover the remaining 20% of the population. So it's yeah, exactly the same um, with 5G uh, in that, you know, kind of you'd be able to get the towns and everything uh, covered fairly quickly. But in order to uh, service the rural areas, you're still going to have to run out cable to these areas and you're going to have to put up a ton of extra masts. I mean, I think they were saying there's going to be 6,000 extra masts that are going to have to be put up across the country. So, no, I, I just don't see it as a, a, a as a viable option. Ah, uh-huh. so it, it has to be fibre to the home. That's that's the only workable solution. I don't know. Uh, if I, w- I would never say that that's the only workable solution, but I think at the moment it is the most sensible solution. And actually kind of, um, I'm, um, it all depends on what you want to do. It's kind of like, like with radio broadcasting, I'm a great believer in the simplicity of having a transmitter on a mountain and it just broadcasts away. And it doesn't matter how many people are listening you know what your costs are going to be. You know where the the signal is going to reach. You can't do that with 5G because you need to have two-way traffic. And in order to do the two-way traffic, I think the most reliable way of doing that is to either to be running wire or fibre or some kind of connection into all the homes, which is why I love the Syro project because they were using the electricity wires, which are already there. Yeah, yeah. And Syro, they were a bidder for the uh, National Broadband um, project at one stage mm. and i can't remember why they pulled out I, I i think it was a case of you know uh, actually i think i remember what happened here um air basically got tired of waiting on the government to make a decision and they had a look at the lowest hanging fruit that there was for the market and went okay we can do we'll say two two hundred thousand customers out of a uh, uh, the million lined up to benefit from this project. I'm mm. just plucking those numbers out. But you you get the idea. They they saw which customers were likely going to be profitable and just went, okay, we're going to start developing in those areas without government help. And do you know what? The rest of you guys can take the least profitable market share in the country and that's your business. More or less, they just went, we're, we're not interested. We found a better ways of making money. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> True enough. Anyway, finally, it's here. Uh, and I think, yes, 
Uh, I think it's going to be a hugely positive move for the country. And I love that, as you say, comparison with the uh, electrification scheme from, I mean, before you and I were born. But look at the benefits that electricity has brought to the world. Now, if we're able to bring high-speed internet to, to every home that wants it or needs it or in every business that wants it or needs it around the country, regardless of where they are, I think the benefits for Ireland as a country will be phenomenal. So I'm a big supporter of the National Broadband Plan, as is. Now, as the is. other big story of the week this week has been not in Ireland, but uh, halfway around the world in uh, the States at the Google I.O. Developers Conference. And one, I, of the big, uh, one of the big events of the year at this stage. Indeed. And I really like, I have to say, I think out of all of the various ones, well, I mean, we've had Apple and Facebook and uh, Microsoft, yada, yada. I think out of all of them, Google is my favorite because Google is the one that always turns out really innovative stuff and really different thinking. And they're also, one thing I notice uh, about Google is they tend to say... We're announcing blah, 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 and it's available today, <laughs> which I think is really mm-hmm. good. Because normally it's kind of like, you know, Da-da, here's the new phone and it'll be available in six weeks. We'll be taking pre-order. No, I do. if I see it and I'm excited about it, I want it today. Um, so, like, one of the first things that they, or the, one of the biggest announcements that they had was the uh, the new phone, which is the Pixel 3a. Now, the Pixel phone that they have is a very good one, but as we have said before, it's very expensive. It's up there with the top-end Samsung and Apple phones and everything like that. Um, but I like what they've done with the Pixel 3a. It's 400 quid, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to get to that price, it doesn't have as good a processor. Uh, the screen is not as good. The, the the resolution is not as good. It doesn't do wireless charging. I don't think it's as dustproof or as waterproof as the other. And that's fine. You will take all those kind of hits. But what's the most important thing in phones these days is almost the camera. And the mm-hmm. Pixel, full fi- Pixel phone is known for having an outstanding camera. And the cheaper Pixel 3a has got the exact same camera. Right. I think that's a really good move by Google to do that. I'm excited about that. Um, all the stuff that they uh, released at uh, Google I.O. Now, I wonder where you sit on this. Uh, they've, they've kind of amalgamated their, their camera, the Nest camera for, for security, uh, and then their uh, home hub, and then the home Max, and the smart speakers and the smart screens and all that kind of stuff, and they're calling it the Nest hub. Mm, right. one of these things, it's kind of like, you can imagine like it's a, a Google Home speaker with a, a, a tablet attached to it, so you've got your screen and now, for the first time with Google, it's got a camera, and that camera is always on, and it has face recognition. So as soon as you walk into the room without saying a word, it will recognize you and then set things up accordingly. In some ways, I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing technology. And then in others, I'm going, yikes. <laughs> where, where do you yeah, sit? Where do you sit? I am not a fan of facial recognition uh, software, I think it is tremendously problematic. Um, and I understand, I mean, for me, this is pretty much the classic example of technology doing something before thinking about the consequences of actually doing something, what the abuses of doing something, mm. uh, doing something like that could be. I mean, on the surface level, 
I'm sure they imagine the, you know, knock on the door or whatever, the, the honey, I'm home moment, only instead of living with a, a human partner, you have a, a, a domicile that will respond to your every need, whim and personal setting. I'm sure that's the dream. Uh, however, what happens if somebody hacks that system or what happens if law enforcement looks to get access to your system to maybe see where you were at a given time, at a given day? That's my issue. And I, I would be exactly the same. I think it's quite interesting where uh, Amazon brought out one of their uh, smart speakers and, and it had a little screen and stuff like that. Um, and uh, basically kind of what they say is that you're able to talk to other people and you're able to chat to them and interact on the screen and it's fantastic and they market this don't ask me why they market this screen with the camera attached to it as a product that you would use in the bedroom no in the bedroom with a camera it's like pardon <laughs> I don't yeah. think I don't think no. it's selling so well um, no, that, that's that's almost up there with, you know, waterproof shower cam. <laughs> but you're right. No, with it, thank it, you. It is scary, though, with the face, facial recognition. I was at a, a security conference recently and there was a, an Israeli uh, exhibitor there. As you know, Israel and security kind of, <laughs> they're, they're, they're the high end of things. All right. They're, they're um, big on it. All right. But they were showing me a system where they have where they had a camera at the entrance to like a, it was you know, a big concert stadium or a football stadium or something like that, and people were streaming in. And they were Mm -hmm. able to just grab facial recognition of almost everybody walking through that gate and then pinpoint where that person was an hour later. Wow. And I just went, again, wow, that's amazing, but (laughs) that's really scary. The the problem is that I think the but settles in far too late in the life cycle of these products like i'm sure a lot of people at io were looking at facial recognition solutions and going that is fantastic i will be able to do so much with my app with whatever with my current project with my um you know my new startup that i'm doing on the side you know there's tremendous possibilities here meanwhile there's one or two guys in the audience going nope nope, this is really problematic Mm. and somebody needs to put the foot down on this and say, you know what, just because we have the capability of developing technology like this and it's it's wonderful and potentially um, uh, a labour-saving device uh, and used in some contexts, uh, in others, I mean, it can be weaponized very, very easily. I know. And I, 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 it's kind of back to where where I like Google. Google go off, they do these amazing things uh, because they can. And it's like, they, yeah, you're right. They think about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. quite fascinating. Okay, so what, what else have we got? Um, actually, just speaking of on the privacy side of things, Google were doing the whole privacy lark, yada, yada. And I, I saw somebody taking a stab at Google uh, and actually giving kudos to Apple. And even though I don't normally have good things to say about Apple, I will absolutely give kudos and 10 out of 10 to Apple on the privacy side of things. Because Google announced that, uh, you know, uh, apps like Maps and, and other apps that need your location will now only actually access those that location when the app is in use, whereas previously it was keeping tabs on the location at all times. Mm. And somebody pointed out Apple have been doing that for years. And then yeah. I remember I was reminded of uh, now I know it was a terrorist attack in the, in in the states a couple of years back and the FBI uh, needed to get into this 
person's telephone who had uh, caused all kinds of uh, terror and damage and, and death along the way. And uh, Apple said, regardless of what this person has done, no, we're not going to help you break into it because we can't. Mm, yeah. And again, I think the the FBI went off to Israel, funny enough, <laughs> and I think they got it sorted there. But Apple, when it comes to privacy, I think they are, are really on it. Google say that they are going to be more on it. So uh, Google Maps is going to have an incognito mode, which I think is interesting. Oh, and the other good things mm-hmm. with uh, Google Maps is that they're going to bring in uh, walking directions, which is, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, it's really interesting. Uh, what, what they do is they use the map and then the camera and what the phone is doing is it's using a combination of the location of where you are and what the camera is looking at to be able to precisely point where you are, what direction that you are facing and the direction that you need to go next. Mm. Very, very clever stuff. And it's doing that because it's been photographing uh, with Street View for so many years. So it's uh, yep. that that was interesting. Uh, what else was new at uh, Google I/O that I wanted to tell you about? Um, Assistant, uh, they're, they're getting that a little bit better. Uh, basically, what they've done is they've taken the uh, the language recognition software, which was like it was like a hundred gigs or something like that. Wow! But it would sit on the servers, and that's that's what works. But that kind of led to a little bit of delay when you use the assistant because there would have to be a trip back to the server to figure out what you were saying and yep. then understand it. Da, da, da. They've managed to squeeze that down now to half a gig. And uh, I think in certain circumstances, uh, that uh, information and language recognition software is able to sit on the actual device again, which makes it super fast. So, there so is that going to be sort of a, a frequently asked questions version of Google Assistant will, will live on your phone or what have you? I don't know. I don't know where uh, it's going to mm. use, but I was just looking at the, the how they're doing it. And I thought that was uh, uh, quite interesting. Um, I'd actually, do, do you know where they might use it is with uh, live captions. Uh, which was a thing if, if you're chatting to somebody on Skype or on FaceTime or, or well, whatever this is the video call and they're doing these are the demonstrations they were doing that as people were talking subtitles were being displayed underneath them. Huh. And you could use this on YouTube. I see this a lot on YouTube. I see this a lot on Facebook where there are subtitles playing on videos where you want to keep the sound yes. low or even the sound off altogether. Yeah, but see it on Twitter as well. Yeah. Yeah, but the fact it's able to do it in real time is like Wow. So that was interesting. Uh, and I'll wrap up with uh, Google I.O. with the, the one thing that made me laugh. And uh, I don't, you, you, you're old enough to remember, I think, Niall, uh, back in the early to mid 90s when websites were starting. All right. And when, when the Internet was a thing. Yeah. When the, when the Internet. Yeah. And the one thing, the way you designed all the websites was websites were black with white text. Yes. That was just the design. And then everything changed. All right. And now, with Android Q, it's got dark theme, where it's black. (laughs) It's kind of like, all I can hear is my mother's voice going, if you hang around long enough, that'll come back in fashion again. (laughs) Anyway, listen, there we go. That uh, brings us up to date with uh, Google I.O. and the National Broadband Plan. Nile, as always, thanks for checking in with us. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. This weekend sees Dublin's first 3D city data hackathon, with teams consisting of everyone from urban planners to software developers from around the country will use open data and a virtual model 
of the Docklands to solve challenges for anyone living, working or visiting the capital. As part of the competition, there will be a panel of experts in 3D modelling, VR, AR, gaming and digital construction, whose insights will inspire the participants to discuss the state of the art and hopefully inspire some projects as well. Ahead of the competition, Oz Kitson sat down with Carol O'Sullivan, who is the director of the Science Foundation Ireland Centre for Research, Training in Digitally Enhanced Reality and a panel contributor as well to find out more. I guess with any kind of emerging technology, especially looking at VR and AR, it's interesting to see sort of the the line of uh, development that things have have taken. And you've kind of been there from the beginning in terms of uh, computer graphics um, at an academic level in Ireland. So tell us a little bit about your background there. Okay, well, actually, my academic roots are in mathematics, um, uh, which is at, at the core of a lot of the technical developments in computer graphics, AR, vision, and such like. Um, so, yeah, so I got hooked on computer graphics um, initially because I like the, 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 the aspect of seeing the results of some mathematical calculations or algorithmic uh, calculations. And then from from being interested in computer graphics and the visual results that you see, I then started getting really interested in human perception and how people actually perceive um, these visual images. And th- I think that's that's becomes even more important once you start getting into not just seeing visual images, but being immersed in, say, a virtual environment in VR, or even more freaky, I suppose, for your senses is when your real world is automatically enhanced through some kind of of virtual um, um, data. So maybe you might have like a virtual person sitting in the room with you or uh, a virtual explosion will occur beside you on some real wall or something like that. So I think, you know, everybody has a kind of an academic journey or... Uh, it's very hard to stay focused on one small area of research for your entire career and this is one of the things that also led me to work for Disney for three years as well um, because there uh, in Disney everything is about the experience whether it's uh, in the parks where you have these interactive experiences where you're trying to create like a, a, a physical but virtual uh, interaction between the visitors to the park and the and the attractions, or whether it's in the movies where you're sitting down, and obviously uh, there's a lot of computer graphics involved, both in live action um, to create special effects, but also to create these animated uh, cartoon um, worlds and experiences. So I think that's you know that's that was just my journey, but I think. Uh, uh, there's many people would have have similarly circuitous routes to where they end up. Yeah. Uh, one of your, I, I guess, signature projects is looking at the behaviour of crowds, uh, which on one level. I guess when you think about how it was done in the past, you either had very basic models like in old sports games or in terrible films or B-movies, you would see cardboard cutouts with no motion to them whatsoever. So what was the attraction of that particular problem for you? So one of the... So there are several different aspects to crowds that I think are particularly interesting. So one one aspect of it is they're incredibly complex, you know, and in research we're always looking for hard problems to try and find innovative solutions to solve them. So simulating vast numbers of crowds and rendering them and actually creating the images of them for 
on the screen for a game was just like such a hard problem to solve that it, it, it was open, wide open for some innovative solutions. So the approach that I took to crowd simulation was to look at, well, let's what makes a crowd look believable? What makes it look like it's behaving um, appropriately rather than trying to simulate from the bottom up the behavior of every single uh, character in the crowd, which is like one approach that you can take that would be taken maybe by for, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of simulation systems or like Massive or whatever. But um, our approach was more, okay, let's look at it and see how does the person perceive this behavior? What are the kind of things that jump out? You know, does everybody have to walk the same way? Will people notice if you're repeating the same colors of clothes? You know, um, what kind of behaviors stand out as looking believable or not believable? And then we took all that, we took all of those, you know, that human perception side of things and explored that and then built that knowledge into algorithms that were much faster to simulate crowds. Um, And when we're looking at crowd behavior, uh, things that come to mind are the likes of sporting events or maybe uh, funneling people through a a stadium to see, you know, does the uh, does the fire exit system work? Are, are we looking at problems like that? So those are kind of the classic problems for for crowd simulation, and those weren't really the problems we were addressing because you don't necessarily need to visualize those crowds. You just need to be able to simulate them and do some kind of mathematical flow calculations to see well if we open up this entrance or exit will people be able to get out so you don't need to be able to see an animation of the crowd in order to do that whereas we were looking at situations where we wanted to create this either in a game environment you know uh, like Assassin's Creed is one example of where crowds are used quite effectively to create a good experience in the game or in a virtual environment so and then so for example also in um, a place like Disney you're interested in creating like pre-visualizations or or uh, pre-simulations of experiences Um, so you might want to create a pre-visualization very quickly of a movie scene um, so that you can decide you know I'd like the crowd flow to go this way or that way or I'd like you know um the, the crowd to behave or emote in a certain way or you might want to say okay so let's say I build this new interactive experience or attraction what will it feel like if I'm there with a, a lot of people around me you know what, what, what kind of behavior will the people in are the people in the in the crowd likely to exhibit when they're when they're interacting with this with this space so that was kind of a bit went a bit more towards you know trying to simulate the experience to create a believable experience of interacting with these with these crowds so it's almost like you're drilling down to the level of the persona you know you would have you know irish family going to uh, disneyland to have a look at exhibit x we think they will behave this way. Is that the level you're looking at? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. No, that sounds that sounds a little bit more um, more control freaky. You know, it's it's more it's more trying to say from you from your perceptual system. If you're in this place, what will it feel like? You know. Um, so, for example, if you t- took an example here, like say in if you wanted to create a tourist attraction an augmented reality tourist attraction down on the on um, by the Liffey here you could for example 
creative and an immersive experience where you are one of the people in this famine, you know, the famine memorial. What, what would it have felt like if you were there surrounded by all these, you know, emigrants, you know, starving, you know, on their way down to get the uh, get the ship. So it's that kind of a of, of an of of, of a, a crowd simulation experience that's interesting to me. Is what does what does it feel like? What does it look like? What does the behaviour look like? Not not so much the modelling of the user themselves. And I'm not not particularly interested in doing that. I don't think that's a very from my own point of view I think it's you know we all perceive things in a very similar way visually and and, and you know the way we hear and see things so I think yeah, I'm more interested in at that level than you know personal preferences so. That sort of raises the question of the uncanny valley you know at what point does it become uh, either inauthentic or uh, uncomfortable to be around a certain experience Yeah and I think that's that's something that's been explored a lot in you know, computer graphics, and then it was explored in VR to a certain extent as well. But in augmented reality, where you've got these virtual people in your real world, I think the the um, potential for being particularly uncanny is even larger because you're going to have that uh, a much stronger feel of this is something very uncanny that's in my real world, whereas you might, you know, suspend your disbelief when you're watching it in a movie or in a VR environment. So uh, I think that's a really interesting direction of research um, um, to pursue. We do, myself and my colleagues, have been involved in this kind of exploring realism and levels of realism um, um, over the past years, but I think in, in context of augmented reality and mixed reality, I think that's particularly challenging and interesting. I think one of the challenges of augmented reality as technology is, is also that whatever interface that you're using, I think mostly uh, people will be using smartphones at the moment. Of course, you've got the likes of HoloLens as, as well. How big a barrier are the are, is the device, if you will, to enjoying the kind of work you're doing? So I think the actual augmented reality devices currently are very limited, you know. So, yeah, you're either looking at it through the window of your mobile phone or a a tablet or or an iPad or whatever, or you have this quite limited field of view headset. So we've had some projects with the Microsoft HoloLens, and it definitely reduces your immersion in the virtual content when the window through which you're looking at it is small or the latency, the, you get delays in your interactions. Um, gestural interaction is very limited. But I think, you know, because the, the promise of mixed reality is so enormous, you know, people won't want to be closed off completely in a virtual world the idea of having the virtual uh, extending their own reality is so attractive that I think that's why you know the big companies are throwing money in this and investing in this and I think it's only a matter of time before the technology becomes less intrusive you know that'll be as simple as something connected or, or wirelessly connected to your to your smartphone or whatever you know I think it's just a matter of time but Apart from that, there are still many examples of these augmented experiences that do work incredibly well. They're very bespoke. So, for example, in a theme park, you know, like Universal Studios or Disney World or Disneyland, you do have these augmented reality experiences, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean, you have... um, 
you have um, you know a virtual hologram of, of Jack Sparrow Captain Jack Sparrow popping up in front of you um, now they're very bespoke and, and built as that but you can still experience these these uh, these augmented experiences and have been able to for many years just the technology is getting closer and closer to making it truly transparent and also available universally One of the um, uh, big events that you're involved in uh, is the um, 3D hackathon that's happening as part of AR VR it brings to mind or it raises the question what sort of conversations are actually being had in the direction of uh, future developments in blended reality uh, what sort of uh, data sources for example are being used are you are you looking at observational data within theme parks etc or is there a role for say open data as well so I think the 3D hackathon um, that's on next weekend is, is a really good example of the kind of creativity that can be um, be inspired by just giving people, giving smart people a bunch of, of really cool data. So for in this case, it's a 3D model of the of the, the Docklands area and then just letting a bunch of creative people work around uh, ways to use that data and augment it and uh, to, to create these kind of experiences. In terms of user data and observational data, um, I think in, in some ways that can be useful to determine how people will interact with experiences such as uh, augmented reality experiences. Um, but uh, I think the, the 3D data, making it available to smart people to come up with ideas, I think is a, a very promising way to do that. Uh, and when we're looking at the academic supports that are coming on stream, is VR and AR still siloed or is there sort of a, an offshoot structure where it's considered that, okay, there's enough here to start looking at it as its own entity? Yeah, I mean, I think virtual and augmented reality, you can't just point to one single academic sort of field that would be adequate to to solve the opening problems, right? So if you take augmented reality in particular, you've got computer graphics, okay? So computer graphics, that's the actual, just generates the, the virtual content and makes it look realistic. So that's one big field of study. But then you also have the, 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 the sort of the the field of computer vision because you also need to, to be able to take images and videos in real time of the real world around you and then extract information from that using computer vision techniques. And then you've got the additional problem of then overlaying or merging the virtual content in a stable and realistic way with the, the real content that you've, you've analyzed and understood. And then on top of that, you've got interaction. So, you know, human-computer interaction, because you then need to be able to interact with this virtual content um, in a seamless way. So how do you interact with a virtual person who's sitting in the real world? How do you pick up virtual objects and put them on real surfaces? Um, uh, How does that feel? You know, how do you make that feel even remotely natural? You know, so you've got the field of HCI and then human perception and human psychology as well. 
Um, so I think it, it is definitely uh, a field that's growing in its own right and needs to be studied and there needs to be new theories and frameworks for for, for evaluating you know the, the, the quality of, of, of these mixed reality experiences and also methodologies for for, 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 for developing these, 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 these experiences and evaluating them. Yeah. It seems that there's a great potential for the overlap between uh, the arts and the sciences here where you have uh, people from a, a scientific background looking to solve specific problems and people from an artistic background looking to create stories and narratives that actually make those particular uh, problems believable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think yeah, that's just one example of where interdisciplinarity is not only nice, but absolutely necessary. So, you know, we, the computer scientists and mathematical geeks, we don't necessarily know how to tell a story or to create a beautiful visual experience or to create a compelling interaction. So definitely we need interactions with, 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 with those fields to help to develop these experiences. But then there's also interactions with many other fields that are that are useful as well. So, like many of the of the other sciences or the health, um, the health disciplines would have problem specifications or problem ideas or areas that are could be really enhanced by um, or, or, or you know, solutions could be found through the use of virtual and augmented reality. Um, but, but also that these questions themselves would drive forward new research directions in, in the actual, on the technical side to help try and solve the problem. So, for example, in, you know, enhancing the aging process, you know, um, enhancing the quality of life for people with disabilities uh, or, um, um, or other health-related health, health uh, uh, issues. Yeah. And that was Niall Kitson with Carol O'Sullivan, Director of the Science Foundation Ireland Centre for Research Training in Digitally Enhanced Reality, talking about this week's 3D City Data Hackathon. If you want to know more about AR and VR research in Ireland and the Centre's PhD programme, do visit their website. It's d-real.ie. That's the letter D, dash, and then the word real.ie. That's our show for this week. Uh, remember, you can get the uh, lowdown on all things that we've talked about and tech in Ireland and around the world with early updates, daily le- newsletters and more, which you can grab at our website, techcentral.ie. Or, of course, tune into our show each week online on uh, Spotify and uh, tune in and on our website, of course, techcentral.ie and broadcast on Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much as always for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.